0: This time
1: we will receive our ties and offerings if the officers come forward. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come uh, to you now to worship you through our tithes and offerings, we pray that, that we will indeed use these funds as good stewards in spreading the gospel locally and throughout the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for these great gifts that you've given us, and we give back to you this small portion. We pray that you would use these funds to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, many of you know, and some of you may not, that this is an official day for this specific denomination, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. This is called Sanctity of Life Sunday that they've been having for decades. As you know, this is the oldest denomination in the United States, and frankly, quite a few hundred years ago, we didn't need a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, but now it's kind of an official thing. So in all of the churches in the denomination, they will be drawing attention to a certain theme. Uh, With that, it does kind of fall right into what we've been talking about, because we started a couple of weeks ago talking about the Exodus, and talking about the people that came out of Egypt, God led them with a mighty hand, and God parted the seas, and they walked through on dry land, a great deliverance of God by his miraculous power. Well, there are other times in the life of Moses that will be on the for the next few weeks. If you'll go to Exodus chapter 1, please. Now, I know everybody always says you should never preach from the Old Testament, but it's still a testament, right? They're all good, both sides. Really, when you think about it, most of the Bible is the Old Testament. The New Testament's a pretty small sliver. Everything that's in the New Testament is in the Old Testament. It really is. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it's in type and shadow and in representation and figure. And then in the New Testament, we find out what it all means. And almost everything in it is pointing to Christ and him crucified, even the Old Testament sacrificial system, all of these different things. Now, in verse 8, we get a verse of chapter 1. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt that did not know Joseph. So if you remember the story contextually, as you go back into the, the book of Genesis, you find Joseph. And he's one of the sons of Jacob. And he is the one that dreamed dreams and interpreted dreams for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh put him over all that he had. And it says in the text that through Joseph as a representation of Christ, the entire world was saved from death through Pharaoh and Joseph. So it's talking about long after that, hundreds of years after that, that a new king arose who forgot all about Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. So the main motivation of this Pharaoh in regard to the people of Israel, the chosen people of God, called by his name and for his purpose, was fear. Fear of politics. Now, politics matters. It's all through the Bible. If you think the Bible doesn't say anything about politics, just read it sometime, because you're not going to get that impression. Politics is all through the warp of the wolf of it. Who's, who's in control, who has power, economics, taxation, it's all in there thousands of years ago. Nothing new under the sun. It's the same old thing today, right? Well, at this time, they reduce the people of Israel to a place of servitude and slavery. Now, when we think about these things, there are these thoughts that come into our minds like, could never happen to me, because I'd fight them, right? You think they couldn't have fought him? At the same time, we're also talking about the greatest military power that had ever existed on earth at that time. So God's people several times through the Bible have been reduced to a place of servitude. And here they've been in servitude for 300 years. And we always want to remember that that means that when they cried out to God, it was generation to generation before God finally sent his deliverer. God always saves his people. He always delivers his people, but not always on our timetable, right? But his promises are always true. Therefore, he set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities in Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread... Broad. Now, doesn't this happen with Christianity too? I know you guys pay attention to the news and the things going on in the Middle East, right? And now ISIS has hypothetically, for the most part, been destroyed. But the impression of Christians in those lands has actually increased through time. Christianity, still, of all the religions on earth, is still the most persecuted. Still, more of us die each year than any other religion for the simple purpose of our faith and such. But I want you to remember the way that God paints this mystery in Scripture. That when the church is under the white hot heat of oppression, it grows and it increases. Some of the great martyrs of the past have said that the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. And in many ways, that's true, right? But also, when the church falls under oppression, it tends to mean, by our calculus, not the world's, what they think they're doing for the purpose of evil it tends to be something good because it means God is going to do something wonderful. We get reports from around the world. If if you ever examine this denomination you're in, you'll always be surprised to find out that we have more than twice as many members outside of the country than we do in the country anymore, especially in places like Pakistan, where the church is thriving, but also in Iran, which has been in the news a lot, right? When people in the world take a position that they are going to persecute the church, we kind of always know God's on our side. We don't always know God's on our side in everything, right? Let me give you an example that comes up a lot in Mississippi. Football. (laughs) You got two teams. They're all Christian kids. Statistically, they're Baptists, but we won't go there, right? And they're praying, God, give us victory over our enemies, and they're all praying, right? But only one team is going to win that game, right? It's in our experience that God tends to bless the team that practiced the hardest. But there are surprises, aren't there? But really, the team that won really is the team that God said would win. It's not because he's against the other guys, right? Sometimes God's on both sides, but one team's got to win, Right? But it's not always that way through Scripture. And when people choose a position that I am going to persecute the people of God, and I'm going to make them suffer, God takes signs. He does all through the Bible, and so for us to think He doesn't do that in history, is just short-sighted. He takes signs. He does. He's rarely ever neutral. Verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. But then it gets worse. Then the king of Egypt sent to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Puah. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women, and you see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, this is a heavy thing. It's trying to suppress the people of Israel by keeping the number of sons down. Trying to keep the number of children being born down to reduce their power, to reduce their might, to reduce their ability to resist. But also, just as a sheer act of wanton evil. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. So notice, it's a law. It's a rule. These oriental despots, the pharaohs, whatever they said was law, they made their own laws. They didn't need to go through parliament or congress, right? But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? Let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them family. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born of the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Now, we do have an issue in our own society about what to do with the children. Let me give you a basic rule. It's not just a Christian rule. It's been a basic rule, a construct of human law, for the last 5,000 years. You can take it or leave it. It might not matter to you at all. But here's the rule. The strongest laws are set up to protect the weakest members of the society. Think about that for a minute. Just that's the way we make laws, right? I don't need so many laws to protect me. I'm well armed, right? Basically, if somebody tries to come and oppress us, we can oppress them right back, right? So the laws aren't necessarily set up, except for in certain ways, to protect the strong or the wealthy. Although they do need protections of law, the laws of any society are set up to protect the weakest members. If the laws start to be set up to persecute the weakest members, then you know that the whole society is becoming corrupt. It's kind of like this is only a representational issue of the entire conscience and the makeup of society. When the laws are set up with no protections or actual aggression toward the weakest, most fragile members. Now, the weakest, most fragile members of any society are babies because they don't know English and they have a hard time fighting back. <laughs>
0: they
1: to make it funny, but it's just true. So you can tell by what we do to the weakest, most fragile members what's really going on in us. We might pretend that we're smart. We might pretend that we're scientific. We might pretend a lot of things. But by what we do to people, we can tell where our hearts really are. By what we allow and by what we actually do. So here at this time, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Can you imagine? Can you as a mother imagine hiding your baby child from the aggression of not just people, but the state, the entire government? When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with vitamin and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds, and and she sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew older. She brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. And she named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now I know it's a narrative. And there are parts in it. But we can look deeper into it. Into the secret providences of God. Notice what this mother did. She got a basket. And she put pitch, basically tar, around it. So that it would float. And she cast him out into the water of the Nile. Now... This might seem horrific, but at the same time, it does show her great confidence in God that she knew that God had his hand on the child. And he did go out into the water. And he was carried by the flow of the river. And she didn't see him. She gave him over to God into the waters, as many times happens in Scripture. But do you think that God wasn't guiding the currents with his hand? And that his spirit wasn't upon the child? To bring it to that place at that specific day and that specific time to find Pharaoh's daughter. And really, Pharaoh's daughter, I'm just going to figure, was not highly in favor of Hebrew politics, right? She was raised in her father's house. But for whatever reason, when she looked upon this child, it broke her heart and it says she took pity on him. And love happened in her heart and you think God was not enslaving her heart at that time to just love this child that she had seen for a mere moment so that she could not cast him away. And notice in God's providence, Moses' sister is walking down the bank, right? And she's seeing this happen. And Pharaoh's daughter does not know Moses' sister. It's not like they're pals, but she happens to say, Uh, Do you want me to call one of the Hebrew women? I might know one. Right? And his own sister receives the child from Pharaoh's daughter and takes him and nurses him. And he's nursed at his own mother's breast until such a time as he's old enough. And then he goes into Pharaoh's house. you see the way God is orchestrating the warp and woof of human society and all of our morals and the desires of our hearts? To bring about a certain end that's good for the people of God. She didn't love him of her own devices. She loved him because God gave her love for him. And he was raised in Pharaoh's house. And he became a statesman. And he became a warrior. And all of those skills that he learned in Pharaoh's house, God put to the application and test of the deliverance of the Hebrew people from Israel. So that Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house, he was taught all of the things a prince would be taught, and yet all that time he was a Hebrew, but he had protection, right? Pharaoh's own daughter, her heart was latched to him. Now I know you know those verses in the Bible that say, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord, he turns it like a water course, wherever he wants to do it, right? Nothing that happens in society happens by accident, but everything happens with a consequence. There are times even when Israel itself had sinned against God. And so God raised in the people of the Assyrians that were a mighty nation the idea that they would conquer Israel. God is guiding. He's never absent. And this makes us think things like, well, why doesn't he just eliminate all evil? Why doesn't he just take it all away? The only possible answer to that is that is not his full intention at the present time. Couldn't he just have cast away all of Egypt for his people the Hebrews, but he did not. Now, later, the place where Jesus went, and a place where Jesus taught, and one of the first nations to be converted to the Christian faith was Egypt, right? There's still an Egyptian church there under hot persecution, but they still worship the Lord our God to this day. Sometimes God's plans for a people and why he does not visit upon them what they truly do deserve has to do with something he's going to do a thousand years hence. We have to trust God that he really knows what he's doing in the calculus of the universe, and we don't. And we don't. In this, I want to read Psalm 139 to you. Psalm 139. This is one of the ways that it talks about what God's doing when there's a child involved. Now, this is David, of course, and he's, he's just talking about the fact that God knows everything, and he's in on everything in ways that we can't even understand Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down. You know my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. And there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I can't attain it. Hey, also, let's us recognize we can't attain it either. He knows it's true. He doesn't really understand how it all works. Neither do we. But the fact that God's hand is behind and before us, I and mean, that he knows every word on our tongue before we speak it, should be of great comfort to us. Where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, and even the night shall be as light around me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide me from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How great the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more than the numbers of the sand and the sea. When I awake... I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak wickedly against you. Your enemies take your name in vain, and I hate them that hate you. And do I not load those that rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred, and I count them my enemies. But search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's one of the places where the Bible gives counsel that even the child in the womb is knit together at the hands of God. He does not show up late for the party. It's not an afterthought. Every one of you was made by the very specific care and nurture of God. Now the scriptures also say things like, he already knew you before the foundation of the world was laid. Do you guys remember that verse? It's a little bit of a confusing verse. It's a heavy verse, but it is a real thing before the foundation of the world was laid, before the stars were set out, before the earth was made, he already knew you. And he already knew that he would bring you into being. And this is a phrase about love before time. Before there was anything, he already knew you particularly. And he had already set his love on you. Now this is something only God can do. We can't really love things that don't exist yet that we don't know about, but God knows all of his creation from the first to the end, doesn't he? And every child he's known from the beginning, and he already has his hands on them. And in all, in regard to all of his people, his hands are upon you to bless you and not to curse you. Lord our God and Father, we thank you for this time of coming together in your name. We pray that your word would open up in us a great burden, Lord God, for righteousness. That we would leave behind the old and seek out the new, Lord God. That we would follow you in all things and that we would be conformed to the likeness of Christ in this life. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us and gave us a righteousness not our own. And we pray, Lord God, that you would just help us to seek and reach these things in our hearts and minds, so that in knowing them, we would have peace and hope. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Billy. Number 277, I heard an old, old story, which I know has been crazy. You know that your people are calling out to you to end this dreaded curse that we have called abortion, Lord God. We pray, Lord God, that you would change lawmakers' hearts and minds, but mostly the names of your people, that no one would be inclined to do this thing, that they would seek hope and seek out and have help so that children could be saved, Lord God, which we know is pleasing in your sight. We also pray, Lord God, for this congregation that as they go out today, Lord God, they would go out with fresh hearts and fresh minds to serve you, Lord God, to serve you in love and hope. We also pray, Lord God, for this fellowship meal that we're about to have, that you would bless the food and bless those eating and bless the hands that made these things for us as we celebrate you in this feast. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Look up and receive the blessing. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Thank you.